0: Acts chapter number 11 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 27. And uh, we're going to be in four verses this evening, Lord willing. And I have a very simple thought tonight, but I believe that it is very needful and very relevant to our lives and uh, to how Christ desires to use us. Acts chapter number 11, verse 27, the Bible says this, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, notice verse 29 once more. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight and we do thank you for loving us. Lord, I need your help. I need your unction and power this evening. I pray that I don't say anything that would not be permitted by your perfect will. I pray, Lord, that there would be nothing I would withhold from saying if it would exhort the believers and and speak to hearts and uplift the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, that's a task beyond me, beyond human logic and comprehension. It can only be accomplished through the leading of your spirit. So I pray tonight that I'd be surrendered as you'd use me to preach, Lord. And I pray that we'd be surrendered in the hearing and that you'd receive glory. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want to preach to you for a few moments tonight on this thought, meeting the need. You know, uh, no matter where it is, if you look in families, there are needs there. If you look in, in, in homes, there are needs there. Certainly, if you look in our nation right now, there are needs in our nation. And the needs that are present in our nation, while I do believe that we ought to be a compassionate people, I believe we ought to help folks, I believe there's a lot of need of uh, things in government being straightened out and fixed, amen? But uh, the greatest need that we have in our country right now is for God's people to experience personal revival and for them to have their lives radically changed in such a way that they become salt to the people and world around them, and that they carry the truth and testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ to their neighbors and co-workers and family members and the people they come across. I'm just going to tell you right now that the only hope for our country is found in revival. And that's it. I'm not saying that there aren't things that need to be done and straightened out and corrected. Of course, we all agree with that. But the greatest need in our country is not a need that's going to be met in the White House or it's not a need that's going to be met in the House of Congress, not a need that's going to be met through legislation, uh, but this is a need that's going to be met in the church house as God's people begin to get honest about their spiritual condition and begin to seek the Lord for power from on high and begin to endeavor to be a witness to the world that's around them. It's the only hope for our country. I'm telling you, we're getting down to the wire and we better get serious about this thing. And we can't make anyone do anything else, but we can make sure we're living right before the Lord. Amen. So there are great needs. And of course, if you look at any local church, and ours is no exception, there are needs In the local church, there are various ministries that need help. There are various uh, activities that need assistance. And it seems like everywhere you look, there are needs that have to be met. What is the answer to these needs? I found this to be uh, true in our lives. There's always in our minds somebody else that's going to meet the need, Right. Uh, It's amazing, Uh, you know, we can be walking uh, across the church and see a a candy wrapper on the floor, and and for what it will think in our minds, somebody else will pick that up. Amen? Has it ever dawned on you that everybody else may be thinking the same thing? Amen? Uh, There are needs all around us. Well, when I look in Acts chapter 11, I see a group of people that saw a need, did not wait to be told, they chose to meet this need, and God received glory from it. I want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be the kind of person that God has to lead about with bit and bridle, like the psalmist talked about, uh, like like an old mule or donkey that has to be half beat to get to do anything. I want to be the kind of person that takes initiative and serves God. And when I see a need, I don't wait for that need to be thrust upon me. I don't wait for that need to be met by somebody else. But I step in and see what I can do to meet that present need. That's the kind of person that I want to be. And I believe that's the kind of person that God would have each of us to be. And I think when we look at this passage, we'll notice a few simple thoughts tonight that will help us become those types of people. Now, I've got three words I want you to have in your mind. And the first is this. Notice in verse 28, the Bible tells us that there was a great dearth, there was a dearth That was coming. Verse 28, the Bible says, and there stood up one of them uh, named Agabus and signified by the spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, that word dearth literally means there was a famine across the whole world. Now, we don't really experience this much today, especially in the first world that we live in. You can pretty much always find something to eat most of the time. Uh, But for a lot of years, throughout human civilization, famine was one of the greatest killers that humanity experienced. Uh, They didn't have the growing techniques that we have today. I mean, listen, most of the food, I, I hate to break this to you, most of the fruits and vegetables you get, they probably come out of a Petri dish somewhere, amen? But at this time, the only way that people ate was if the ground grew things. And if a famine came to pass, well, it meant heartache and turmoil, and it meant death a lot of times to a lot of people. See, you and me, we read that and it seems like a distant thing. We read it and it doesn't really hold a lot of impact because we don't experience that. But to them in this day, when they heard Agabus stand up and by the Spirit say, there is a famine coming across the whole world, no doubt it struck terror in their hearts when they pondered it. You see, what this was, was a great need that had come to pass. I'd like for you to notice three things about it. Number one, notice it was a great need. It was going to be throughout the whole world. This was a need that was everywhere. Uh, This was There was no part of the world that was exempt from this need. There was no part of the world that was insulated or immune to this need. But everywhere you would have traveled all over the globe, you would have found needy people that were in need of food, that were in need of sustenance, that were in need of, as it were, life itself. And it reminds me of this tonight, church, that we have a great need in this world today. And that need is for the witness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ it is a universal need everywhere you go in the world you'll find people that are lost without Christ and the only hope that they have is that someone would come with the bread of life and give them sustenance to satisfy their dying soul see the the fact is we we have a tendency we live in a bubble we all do this every one of us and i, I really i believe social media has facilitated this and i you know i'm not against social media uh, any more than i'm against a rattlesnake amen <laughs> but um, and I got social media. I got, I got a social media can. I might have some rattlesnakes out near my property, too. I don't know. But we better be careful with it because it can harbor some dangers. And one of the dangers that I think it does harbor is this. We create a little bubble, a little world that we live in, and we never look beyond it. Uh, some people call it an echo chamber. <laughs> and it's all around us. And we have the power of life and death, uh, electronically speaking, over who lives in that little world. If we do not like what we see, we just push a button and it's like they never existed. And we create this little cocoon, this world that we live in. And I mean, sometimes as believers, if you're like me, I'd say if I did a percentage, I'd say the vast majority of the people that I interact with in social media, the vast majority of them are saved people. And we're not careful. We'll begin to get the idea that that's what the world looks like. Especially when there is an apostate form of Christianity today that trumpets this notion that everybody's saved. That it doesn't matter what a person believes. If they uh, if they say the name Jesus, that's enough. It doesn't matter what they believe about him. Doesn't matter whether they confess themselves a sinner and ask Christ to save them. Uh, you hear people all the time talk about, well, I, you know, I don't know about all that born again stuff, but I'm a good person. And with that kind of environment and climate around, it's very easy for us to deceive ourselves into not realizing what a great need there is around us. Me and a preacher friend, we were riding down the road yesterday and, and we were talking about, you know, he's a pastor and we were talking about pastoring and everything. And, uh, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of churches that aren't fishers of men. They're, they're keepers of the fish tank. Amen. You know what I mean when I say that. They, uh, a lot of never endeavor to win anyone to Christ. They're just swapping people back and forth. And, uh, you know, we were talking about that. And he made this statement and it's often occurred to me. You think about the population of, of Knoxville, 300 some thousand people. Three hundred some thousand people in the city of Knoxville. Imagine what a vast field lies just outside those doors. Now, it's true that we could go all the way across the planet, find people that need Christ. But the need that is thrust upon you and I is the need that is immediately around us of people that need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great need. This is a need that to them, as I've already said, was life and death. And I would say this, that the need that the lost man has is far greater than that of physical life or death. It's spiritual life or death. I mean, all that the famine could do at its greatest ferocity was deprive the physical body of life, cause a man to die, but it could not touch his soul. But you understand that the disease of sin reaches below the physical body. It goes below that which can be perceived or, 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 uh, or understood through a heart monitor or through a microscope. It touches the very soul of a man. And if they die from this disease, they die eternally. Amen? Amen. When they died of a famine, then once they had died, their physical body had died. That, that was, we understand that was it. Now, whatever their spiritual condition was, we understand that was the condition that they'd lived throughout eternity in. But when we talk about sin's disease and sin's and affliction upon the human soul, we understand that this, this touches far more than just a man's physical body and touches far more than just his temporal circumstances. This reaches down into eternal matters. And I would suggest to you that if we were standing here today you know, this. Uh, let me remind you this. Just back this. We all know if we've lived around here, we know about the fires up in Gatlinburg and, uh, you know, so many acres burned and uh, that town suffered a lot and hurt a lot. And uh, one of the things I immediately saw right after that happened, I saw churches begin to gather together bottles of water, bottles of water and Gatorade and supplies. And I think that's a good thing. I'm not against that. I praise the Lord for that. I think that's a good thing. We ought to use things like that to be an opportunity to be a witness. But you imagine, I mean, think about the fact of how gripped people were when they heard that our neighbors just a, you know, a few miles up the road had been a, a, a part of such devastation. Think about what it would mean to you and I if someone was to stand up and be able to say under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost that there is a great famine coming all over the world. Probably there would be people that say, Preacher, we need to do something about that. When the reality is that something far more serious and far more damaging is already all over the world. It's all over Knoxville. And what are we doing about it? I would suggest to you that this was a great need. I'd suggest this to you that it was a guaranteed need. Agabus, when he stood up, we understand this was in apostolic times. We understand that uh, Agabus, when the Bible says he, he prophesied, we understand what that means. We understand that literally the Holy Ghost imparted this truth and revelation unto him. And when he spoke, the Bible says at the end of this verse, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. This was a guaranteed need. And can I say this to you now? There will always be needs, both in the local church and throughout the world, for the witness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As long as time continues and as long as uh, we are in this dispensation of grace, there'll be a need to share the gospel. And I would say this as it applies to a local body and our local body in particular. In the local church, there's always going to be needs. Always. If a local church does not have needs, it's because they're not growing and they're not expanding. A church is always going to have a need of people to step up and step in and be willing to do things and move outside of their comfort zone. Be willing to say, Preacher, I've never done that before, but if you need me to, I will. Preacher, I've never I've never done this and I don't know how to do it, but if you'll teach me how or show me how, I'm happy to step in and do what I can. It's guaranteed that there will always be a work for every born-again believer to do whether it be something in the, in the uh, form of an office or a, or a role within a local body, or simply the unending work of sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a guarantee. If you're not serving God tonight, it's not because there's not a need. Amen? It's a guaranteed thing that there will always be needs. The question is, are we stepping up and meeting those needs? I've got news for you. In the local church, if the church don't do it, there's nobody to do it. Right? There ain't nobody you outsource it to. There ain't nobody you, you go to. Uh, the local church, if, and by the way, the church is not the building and it's not the property. The church is the people. And if the people are not doing it, it's not going to get done. It's guaranteed there will always be needs. Notice the third thought tonight. I'd say this was a great need and a guaranteed need, but I'd say this was a grace need. And you say, preacher, what do you mean? No one could stop the famine. It had already been determined by authoritative witness of the Holy Ghost. This famine was going to happen. No one could stop it. No one was immune to it. And because of that, the only way this need could get met was if people sacrificed that which they had to make sure that it was going to be met. In other words, the only way this need could be met was people giving in the grace of God. That's it. That's it. Uh, you understand that we've not even begun to give until we're given until we feel it. We're not even begun to serve until it shows up on our calendar. Amen. Uh, until we've moved outside of our comfort zone, done things that have displaced what would be our normal flow of events in life. We've not even begun to really serve God. And the only way this was going to be met, somebody had to take a loaf of bread off their table and put it on somebody else's. Somebody had to take time that they were going to spend on themselves and spend on somebody else. And the fact is, church, if we're going to do what God would have us to do, then we're going to have to be willing to give up some things. We're going to have to be willing to give up time. We're going to have to be willing to give up maybe funds. We're going to have to be willing to give up effort and energy and work. We're going to have to be willing to invest in some things. It's funny, I think that we as Christians have for far too long measured our life and used the life of a lost person as the metric by which we measure what's normal. We look at lost individuals and we say things like this. Well, you know, they don't spend all their time down at the church. Well, that's true. They're lost. They haven't been saved by the grace of God. They haven't been born again. They haven't been made part of this body and this fellowship. Somebody ought to help me and amen me right there. It's no wonder they don't do that. People say, well, you know, uh, the, the lost man, he doesn't give to the Lord. Well, that's true. He doesn't give to the Lord. He don't have anything to give to the Lord. The fact is, people say, well, you know, I don't see lost people working so hard. Well, that's true. Lost people don't work hard to see the ministries of the local church take place. And the reason is because they're not a part of it. They have no reason to work. They have no reason to labor. The fact is, if we want to see something that is a normal metric by which to measure whether we're living for God or not, we ought to look to, first off, the person Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, to the pattern of the New Testament church that we find in the Word of God. Are we serving God the way they serve God? Now, we get hung up on the fact that we don't have the results that they have. Here's what I think we need to be worried about. Not that we don't have the results they have, but that we don't have the resolve they have. We can't, listen, We uh, the, the God giveth the increase, amen? One man watereth, one man planteth, but God giveth the increase. Don't worry about the increase. Trust God with the increase. Worry about the investment we're placing into it in our time and energy and goods. See, the truth is, the only way this was going to happen was if somebody stepped up and moved out of their comfort zone. I'm sure they would have loved, like most people would have, to have said, well, you know what, I'm just going to take care of me and mine. It's interesting because given the fact that this famine was over the whole world, then they had to spend time seeing to their own family's needs. But they didn't just see to their family's needs, they also saw to the needs of other families. I think sometimes, and this is a a startling commentary on the church today, But I think too often times we view being a part of a church as what we can get out of it and not what we can put into it. I've had this conversation. No doubt, you know, you've heard preachers talk about this before. But I've had people ask me, you know, well, preacher, what does your church have to offer us? And, and, and I think, I think pastors too, too quickly take a bad spirit and attitude. But I mean, listen, if I was looking for a church, I'd want a church where my young people could grow in the Lord. I'd want a church where people worship God. I'd want a church where they were reaching out. I understand all that, okay? But we understand that the, the purpose and reason that we join with and become a part of a local body is not so that we can consume, but so that we can place within that body something for God's glory and for eternal dividends. Listen, no doubt, if you're a part of a local body and if you're walking with God, you're going to derive a lot out of it. You're going to get encouragement. You're going to get led. You're going to get taught. You're going to get built up. You're going to get established in the most holy faith. You ought to, amen? But the reason we're there is not to take, it's to give. The reason we're there is not to be served. The reason we're there is to serve. And I think we too often, we look at it and say, well, I'm looking to my needs. Well, that's good you're looking to your needs, but don't you realize there's a whole world out there that's in need? And what are you and I doing to see to the needs of others as well? I see in this passage that there was a dearth. But look at verse 29. I want you to notice what the Bible says. This encourages me. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. I want you to notice their determination in light of it. Now, they could have said what a lot of people said. Well, tough luck. Your problem, not mine. I've got to fill my pantries. I can't fill your pantries. Okay, that's just the way it is. And no doubt a lot of people felt that way. But these disciples did not respond this way, and that's why they made a difference. Now, listen, you can't make a difference doing what everyone else does. You can't make a difference just operating at the status quo. One of the greatest uh, stains and scourges upon the church today is mediocrity. Uh, Again, we use the life of a lost person as the metric by which we measure what's normal. We say, well, other people ain't doing that. Well, hey, listen, it ain't about what other people are doing. It's about what we're doing. We're not going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, well, Lord, I would have served you more, but they weren't serving you. Doesn't matter what they were doing matters what we were doing. And too often we view things in this way. These disciples did not. I want you to notice three things. Notice, number one, their foresight. The Bible says, then the disciples. Now, if I'm reading my Bible, right, I believe I am. The Bible's not saying here that Agabus stood up, said there's going to be a famine and the next day a famine set in. In fact, if you know anything about a famine, you know that a famine don't just set in. It takes time to set in. Uh, Usually what happens is there's a great drought or something to that effect, and it harms the the crops, there's great blight, or so on and so forth. But these men, they understood this, that if they were going to do anything for God, then, then they had to get started now. Listen, you don't wait till everything's falling apart and then start serving God then. You serve God now. And by serving God now, that's what keeps things from falling apart. I've seen this happen multitudes of times, especially with young people. Um, I, you know, I've seen people that, you know, they wanted to, you know, about the time their teenager was like 15, they wanted to get them in church. Listen, I'm sorry. It's probably too late by then. Now, if you can get them into church, God bless you. You should. That's good. But understand that those formidable years, you've given that up. That's over. It's done. Uh, You know, it was said before, and and you know how these quotes are. You hear them attributed to a bunch of people. The quote I'm about to give you, I've heard attributed to Adolf Hitler, the Catholic Church, and probably Walt Disney if I was to think real hard about it. But you've heard this quote before. You give me a child uh, up until they're five years old and I'll have them the rest of my life. In other words, the idea is those formidable years. There's no substitution. Listen, you you don't start laying up then. You start laying up now. Uh, You don't wait until everything falls apart to get a prayer life. You get a prayer life now. It reminds me of Daniel. The Bible says this in Daniel chapter number 6. The Bible says then Daniel prayed his windows being open. In other words, Daniel didn't wait until the persecution came and opened his windows. He had already had his windows open, been praying and getting a hold of God. And when everything went sideways, he didn't have to go find out how to open the window. It was already open. He knew how to get a hold of God. And that's the reason Daniel made a difference. We too often, we want to put things off until everything goes bad. And then we want to somehow have some kind of miracle fix. Part of that is, is I think, a condition of our society in which we expect everything to come with, with a miracle fix. I was, uh, I'll tell you this story. It's a little bit funny, I guess. Me and my wife, we've been trying to, to, to we decided we want to try to be healthier and get in shape and work out. I don't mean she really wants to. I think she wants me to. But she knows if she says, honey, you're fat and you need to do something about it, I'm going to get upset. So she's, she's kind enough that she's like, well, we need, she always says it that way, we need to start getting healthier. We need to, amen. And uh so we decided we was gonna start and so I started, you know, investigating and looking different things up about, you know, the best way to work out routines and how do you burn the most calories and this and at least I don't wanna look like one of them guys up there that's all covered in oil and buff and everything. I listen, I, I just don't want to break out into a sweat trying to tie my shoes. Somebody say amen to that. And uh so I was looking at different ways that you could go about it, you know. And I got to looking at at how many calories. There are thirty I'm gonna discourage somebody, all right. There are 3,500 calories in a pound. Okay, 3,500 calories in a pound. I got to doing the math. And if I wanted to lose like a pound a week, I was going to have to work out an hour a day, five days a week. Man, you want to talk about discouraging? I just started praying for the Lord to come back. You know, (laughs) I'll be honest with you. I thought there ain't no way I'm going to do that, you know. Here's the reality. When you're taking a bite of that cheesecake, you ain't thinking about that hour on the treadmill. It's a lot easier to, to to not have to not gain weight than it is to lose weight. If you want to get something done about it, you better be thinking now because I promise you this it's a lot more of an uphill climb than you realize it is. And that just doesn't apply to working out. That applies to every element of life. Uh, too often times we'll wait till everything's sideways, and then we want it fixed. We want a miracle fix. Amen. And the truth is that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And if we, want to, if we want our lives to be straightened out, we don't wait till everything goes sideways. We do it when we can. We do it in the moment. We do it now if we want it to be a certain way then. I want you to notice not only their foresight, but notice their focus. The Bible says, then the disciples, every man according to his ability. Now, oftentimes when you hear a preacher preach, he'll say things like this. Well, with God, you can do the impossible. And that's true. I believe that with my whole heart. You'll hear him say things like this. with uh, Men, things are impossible. With God, all things are possible. And that's true. Amen. You'll hear him say things like this in Philippians chapter 4. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And that's true. And I believe that. But I think the problem in our local church is not that we're not doing the impossible. It's that we're not even doing the possible. Notice what their focus was. Every man according to his ability. They didn't start off looking at what they couldn't do. They started off looking at what they could do. Now, I'm convinced of this. If we'll do what we can do, God will help us do the things we can't do. But too often, we want God to help us do the things we can't do when we're not even doing the things we can do. I'm convinced that every local church would be radically transformed if all the people in it would just commit to do what they can do. And certainly if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission, certainly if we're going to glorify the Lord, certainly if we're going to do what God would have us to do, we will have to step out in faith. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. I understand that. But I think the starting point for you and I is let's just start by doing what we can do for the Lord and not get hung up about what we can't do. Because here's what we do. We sit there and say, I'm never going to do anything because I can't do everything. And it stops us from doing anything. You know, you could imagine if somebody stood up in that meeting and said, you heard what Brother Agabus has said. You heard that there's going to be a dearth throughout all the land, and we ought to, brethren, gather together and rescue the whole land from this famine. Probably somebody would have said, you're insane. There's no way we can. We'll be lucky if we survive. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we ought to shoot high. I think we ought to have large aspirations. I think we ought to pray big and expect big things from God. But I don't think there's anything wrong either with recognizing that while we're waiting on God to do the impossible, we have a responsibility to do what is possible. And what they said was this. We may not be able to save the whole world, but we can sure make a difference in Judea. If we'll step up and just do what each of us can, we'll make an impact. You know, the thing is, I understand you may not be able to go out and win the world to Christ because you teach a Sunday school class, two or three, four young people. You may not be able to go out and and win the entire world to Christ, but could you go out and hand a track out? You may not be able, listen, to build this church single-handedly by yourself, but could you go out and invite one person to come to church, follow up with them and encourage them and tell them you'd love to see them there? We get so hung up on what we can't do that we don't even do what we can do. And that's the reason we wind up doing nothing. Because if you're not doing what you can't do, and if you're not doing what you can do, that leaves nothing for you to be doing. And so we sit and we become consumers of the local ministry instead of producers of the local ministry. I see in this passage their foresight and their focus. But notice their fortitude. The Bible says this. They were determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. This wasn't a casual thing. This wasn't one of these, well, maybe we'll do it if things work out. They made their minds up then and there. We can do this, so we will do this. I'll be honest, it takes a little determination sometimes. The devil, he 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 fights by siege warfare. I don't know if you know this, but that's how he fights. A good example of it is found in the book of Isaiah, when, uh, you know, Rabshka was outside of the walls of Jerusalem and Hezekiah is the king. You know, most of the time, the devil, he's not interested in meeting you on the battlefield. He'd rather starve you out behind the walls if he can, because he's got a lot more time than you do. And I found this to be true in our spiritual life. That if we don't strike while the iron's hot, what I mean by that is while the Holy Ghost is dealing with us and while He's spoken to our hearts, if we won't move then, we probably won't move at all. You've heard me say it a lot of times, you know, in the preaching, especially if somebody raises their hand, acknowledges their lost condition, I'll say, look, uh, if you won't come down right now and accept Christ uh, while the piano's playing, while God's people are praying, while other people are down here in this altar, while somebody's waiting with a Bible in their hand uh, to show you the way to Christ, then you probably won't do it sitting in your recliner at home. That doesn't mean you can't. But I think I'm not being too shrewd a student of the human nature when I say it probably means you won't. And the truth is, if we won't yield to God while the Spirit of God is convicting us, what makes us think we'd do it while the TV's blaring and the kids are running around and we're sitting there and we're half falling asleep? Why would we do it then? If we're not going to do it while we're in the house of God... And listen, don't get me wrong, we're getting ready to go up this camp and we've seen, man, we've seen God save people all over that camp. It would shock you the places we've seen God save sinners up there. But the reality is this, God created a place... And in the Old Testament, that place was the tabernacle, then it was the temple. And in the New Testament, while it's not any particular singular place, that place is the New Testament, the local church. The church is the ground and pillar of the truth. Why did God do that? God do that did that because He knew that men needed a place to meet with Him. And He knew that men needed an environment in which things would be facilitated towards meeting with Him. You know, why do we have music during an invitation? You can go all through the Bible and find that there's not any precedent, any scriptural precedent, number one, for an invitation, other than the fact that, you know, Paul always exhorted people to respond to the Lord, but the invitation the way that we do it today in the, in the church, there's no precedent for that anywhere. No precedent for an altar that is used for the purpose of coming down and kneeling at. I know that makes some folks mad, but that's the truth of it. The altar in the, in the Word of God is a sacrificial altar. It's not a, a mourner's bench. There's no precedent in the Word of God for playing music softly, just as I am, while the invitation's... So why do we do it all? What is the purpose of it? Here's why. Because when God's dealing with us, our flesh is trying to stop us. Now, I found this to be the case in pastoring. You can have a beautiful altar. You can have people at the altar. You can have music playing. You can have people praying. You can have a preacher exhorting. And if a person's not being dealt with by God, none of those things will make them go down to an altar. That's true. We understand that. But I found this to be true, that oftentimes when a person is dealing with the Lord and the Lord's dealing with them, their flesh is fighting as hard as it can. And it's trying to keep them from coming down to the Lord. And it's trying to keep them from yielding to God. We do those things to facilitate an environment in when the flesh cannot thrive and the new man and the Spirit of God can take control. None of those things guarantee that happens. But I think they all sort of facilitate and encourage it. And now stop and think about this. If that's the case, if most churches, ours included, does all those things to facilitate a person coming to Christ or coming down to an altar, and then often they still don't go, then why would you think you'd make a decision when you're in the hustle and bustle of the world that's around you? It's not to say you can't, it's just say most of the time you won't. So you better when God's dealing with you, strike then. You better when God's stirring your heart, you better move then because you may not have another not say you won't get another chance you just may not have another chance it it, it may not be that you're in that situation again not because god's going to strike you dead not because you're going to walk out and get hit by a bus but because there, in the house of god where the word of god is being preached is the most uh, common sense and reasonable place for us to deal with god so we better strike while the iron's hot their fortitude they determine They made their mind up, then and there, we're going to do this. Then I want you to notice, and I'm done tonight. I actually only have two points for this, so you'll be real encouraged. Amen. Notice verse 30. The Bible says, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, we see there was a dearth in the land. We see their determination. But finally, tonight, I want you to notice that they delivered. They delivered. They got the job done. Notice, number one, that they followed through, which also they did, is what the Bible says. You know why it doesn't say anything more? Because there was nothing more to be said about it. If that had been said about most of us in the way we serve God, it would have said something like this, which also they wanted to do. But then this came up, which also they tried to do. But then this happened. But you see, when we determine that we're going to serve God and when we follow through, there's not much else to be said. It just says, which also they did. I wonder what our track record is of faithfulness to God. Now, let me say before I even preach on this point that I've been unfaithful to the Lord plenty of times. I'm glad my salvation is not based upon how I deal with the Lord from a day-to-day basis. Because if it was, then there's no way I'd be saved. I fail Him. I'm unfaithful. I do the wrong thing. I'm aware of that. But don't let that reality pull you away from the other reality, which is this. Our, Our life does have patterns. It does have marks of consistency. It does have a track record. Now, what does your track record look like? When you promise things to God, do you follow through? Are there some things maybe right now that you could look at in your life that maybe in the past few months or, or maybe over the past year that you have dealt with God and you have bowed your heart before God and you've said, Lord, I'm going to commit this unto you, but tonight as you sit here, that vow is left unpaid. And you've not done that. We're not going to meet the need until we learn how to follow through, period. Good intentions are good intentions, but they're just that. They're intentions and that's all. We've got got to produce. We've got to do if we're going to make a difference. Notice not only that they followed through, but I like this. Notice that they figured it out. What does it say? Look at the end of verse 30. It says, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Of course, we understand that they are in the midst of their missionary journey. We understand that Barnabas and Saul, that they were based out of the church at Jerusalem at that time. And you know what they did? Those men understood that they couldn't all take that money to to Judea. They understood that maybe not even a single one of them could. So you know what they did? They found somebody that was going and made sure that it got there. Can I give you a very simple thought tonight? We have to start learning how to figure things out. You know, most of us, our progress stops at the first sign of difficulty and at the first obstacle. Uh, Too often, and I've learned this with my little boy, you know, we'll a lot of times tell him to do something. Uh, A lot of times we will tell him, you know, son, go pick up your toys. Or we'll say, go take this toy into your room. And then a few minutes later, you'll be walking through the hallway and that very toy that you told him to take back, you'll find it just laying there on the floor. He'll say, Lawrence, I thought I told you to take this and put in your room. He'll say, oh, yeah, I was going to, but then Mama hollered at me. Oh, oh yeah, I was going to, but then this happened, then that happened. Well, the natural next thing to ask would be, well, son, after your Mama hollered at you, why didn't you, after you spoke to her, go and take it back? But do you know that most of us are no better than that when it comes to serving God? There's probably people in this room that, if they were to, honest, to be honest, there's been times in their life where they've said, Lord, I'm going to start being a better witness for you. What happened? You know, oftentimes what happened was this. Somebody was rude to you. Somebody didn't didn't fall down and get saved the first time that you told them the gospel. i got news for you. Most of the time, that's not what happens. Most of the time, people don't fall down and accept the Lord the first time you hand them a gospel tract. You know, what happened to figuring things out? What happened to moving past an obstacle and saying, yeah, you know, we're facing obstacles, but so what? By the grace and help of God, we'll overcome these obstacles. We'll figure it out. We'll make it work. We'll make it happen. Could you imagine what would have happened to our country if Washington had just stopped at Valley Forge because the weather turned bad? Well, you know, things didn't work out. (laughs) Could you imagine what would have happened throughout all of human history if people had come to these points of critical decision throughout human history? And the first obstacle they came up against, they said, well, you know, that's it. We just we can't do any more. But so often as a body of believers, that's what we do. I have told people multiple times when I first started pastoring that, look, not every ministry is going to work. We're going to try things. Some things will work. Some things won't work. I think it's dangerous for a church to start taking ministries and turn them into sacred cows and pouring money into things, whether it works or not, or, or you know neglecting other things because it's never been tried or whatever. We understand that's all within the bounds of what's scriptural and, and what's glorifying God and what's separated. But the truth of the matter is, some ministries don't work because they're never going to work. But some ministries don't work because you just ain't always going to figure it out the first time that you do it. Sometimes it's going to take effort. It's going to take work. It's going to take determination. I think, and I'll close with this anecdote, I think about our seniors' ministry. You know, our seniors ministry, for probably the first year that we did that ministry, it was basically the cooks cooking for the cooks. It was like 12, 15 people. And, and I, you know, I remember I would get discouraged. And I'm sure our cooks got discouraged when they'd come in. and They'd slaved and, and, and labored and, and, and poured their, their, well, I was going to say sweat and tears into it, but we don't do that with food, amen. But, uh, you know, they had poured all that energy into it and then to see 10, 15 people walk in. But, you know, we just stayed faithful even when it wasn't easy to do. A couple of weeks ago, we had the biggest number we've ever had in there to the glory of God. And some of us were standing around talking and we said, man, do you remember what it was like when we first started and there was hardly anybody there? If the first time we had had a low number, we had just given up and quit, then we would have never been able to make the impact in people's lives through that ministry that we've been able to make over the past six years. And we could say that about a ton of other ministries. I remember the first year that I was here and we had vacation Bible school. We we ran a van that year and, and we've done that each year. But that year we did a big mail out. And we wound up, uh, there was some, some neighborhoods we went and picked kids up in. And and uh, the, I mean, we had like 20 something kids on that 12 passenger van. And uh, I can say that now, I think the statute of limitations is up. but uh, And it was just mayhem. It was chaos. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, everything was was crazy. Adults pulling their hair out, kids pulling adults hair out. It was just it was insane. We weren't ready for it. we weren't prepared. You know, we we had uh, they asked me, how many you think it's going to be there, preacher? And I thought, I don't know, maybe 40 feet. I think we had 90 something each night. And I remember halfway through the week, one of the van drivers coming to me and saying, I quit. I quit. I'm done with it. I'm not going back anymore. You know, imagine all the young people that wouldn't have come to know Christ. If we had said, well, that's just too tough, we're not doing that anymore. And i got news for you, a lot of churches have done that. The fact is, sometimes things don't always work out right away, you've got to figure it out. You're expected to do that on public workplace, right? Why would we give any less to the Lord Jesus Christ? These are the kind of people we need to be if we're going to meet the need. Now here's what I want to ask you, if God's dealt with your heart tonight, are you willing to strike while the iron's hot and to not wait But to determine tonight, whatever God may have dealt with you about, to say, Lord, by Your grace and help, I may not be able to do everything. I may not be able to do the things I can't do. But I am going to do what I can do. And I'm going to commit myself afresh and new to serving God and living for Him. Let's bow our heads together.